All right, you can be seated. Good morning, West Park. Uh, If you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, passage we just read earlier, so we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. And I want to start this morning by apologizing. Uh, My voice is a little bit rough this morning. It's been a rough week. There were a couple days where I couldn't talk at all, so I had a lot of silent reflection on this passage, which was kind of nice. Um, but yeah, so hopefully, you know, maybe say a little prayer for me right now that my voice is able to, to make it through this because I, I believe um, this passage is really key for us this morning and especially where we are as a church. And so um, I want to start by throwing a lot of statistics at you, okay? I'm not a numbers guy, but I'm going to throw you a bunch of numbers this morning just to get you ready, okay? Uh, there was a poll that recently came out from Gallup. This came out probably, I think, sometime in the beginning of the year. Maybe you heard about it. It was all over the news for a little while. Um, This poll said that for the first time in U.S. history, the the percentage of churchgoers in America dropped below 50%. So 47% of Americans are now churchgoers. But here's what's really crazy. The number is dropping rapidly. So in 2000... Year 2000, not that long ago, the number was 23 percentage points higher. So it's dropped 23 percentage points in just 20 years. And here's the part that's really interesting to me when I was looking at these statistics, because I am a young adult. I work here as the minister to young adults, and so I'm always looking at what it means for the future generations that are coming up, right? Because this gives us a snapshot of what the church will look like when we look at the future generations. And here's what this, this found. Um, 58% of baby boomers are churchgoers, but only 36% of millennials are churchgoers. And they think that when Gen Z, the generation after millennials, gets up into fully into adulthood, that the number will be much, much less. And here's another study that came out recently. This was from the Barna Group. They did a really in-depth study of 18 to 29-year-old Americans, and they wanted to see how many of these 18 to 29-year-old Americans are resilient disciples, meaning that their faith is robust and vibrant and they're actually legitimate, from what they can tell, disciples of Jesus, 18 to 29-year-olds in America. They found that 10% are resilient disciples. 10%. So one out of 10 of my generation of 18 to 29-year-olds currently are resilient disciples. So what does all this mean? <laughs> Just throw this out there to depress you. Or, what, what does all this mean? Here's what it means. Here's what it means. Here's what, we ha- here's what we have to understand. These trends show that more and more as people drive past our building on Sunday morning and see all the cars and they look in, at best, many of them think what we're doing is really, really weird, Right? As they drive to brunch to meet friends, they think that what we're doing is really, really weird. And at worst, many think that what we're doing is actually hateful and dangerous. Here's what we have to see. Here's what we have to see. We just celebrated our 60th anniversary as a church. Here's what we have to see. The community that we are ministering to over the next 60 years is going to be very different from the community that we ministered to in our first 60. Things are changing, right? Things are changing. The trends show that things are changing. 
I love this. Russell Moore wrote a book called Onward, and it was all about these trends. And here's what he said. I love it. He, he talks about how when he was growing up as a kid, he would watch these rapture movies. Maybe you watched these. It's kind of missed my age. But he, he, he would watch these rapture movies where people, you know, the Christians are, are kind of taken out of the world. And then, you know, the, the movies always portrayed the, the, you know, the world just kind of falling into chaos without the Christians. But Russell Moore stops and he reflects and he says, you know, we never really considered that they might actually be relieved to see us gone. <laughs> That's what the statistics are saying, right? They may actually be relieved to see us gone. That's where we're going. And look, we have to acknowledge we're in Knoxville, Tennessee, right? The Bible Belt, okay? We're in the Bible Belt. And it's true. It's different here right now than, say, L.A. or Portland or Austin, where we just moved from, or New York City. But the statistics say that our city is quickly trending in the exact same direction. The exact same direction. Here's why I say that. Here's why I, here's why I give you all that. Not to be alarmist. That's not what I'm doing. I want to ask, where do we go from here? Okay, we have to identify the problem. Okay, where do we go from here? Our mission statement as a church is that we seek to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and see them develop as disciples who love God, love people, and impact the world. How do we continue to do that in our cultural moment? How do we do that? Let me give you some options, okay? Let me give you some options. Here's option one. We could not, okay? We could just not do it. We could retreat. We could just say, you know, this country is going to hell in a handbasket, right? We can get together in our little Christian bubbles and just complain about the fact that no one likes us anymore, right? And retreat and be alone, and get away from the world. But here's my thing. Like, here's my thinking on this. I get it. That's, some people are saying that's the option we should take. Here's my thinking. If we're not going to love people, and we're not going to make disciples, why are we here? Okay? Why are we here? Why is West Park here? If we're not going to make disciples, then let's just go ahead and get rid of this building and this property and let it become a Home Depot. Okay? That'll benefit our community much more if we're not going to actually love them and seek to make disciples. I don't think that's a good option. I don't think that's a good option. Option two, we could reinvent Christianity in a form that's more palatable for those around us. We can edit Jesus. We can edit the Bible. I hope you see that that option's even worse, right? And believe it or not, a lot of people have tried it, and it doesn't seem to work, okay? The statistics say that that doesn't work. Well, this morning, I would like to give you a vision for another way forward, another way forward, a vision that I think Jesus modeled for us throughout the Gospels, but especially here in this passage. He modeled the way of radically ordinary hospitality, radically ordinary hospitality. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, and I want to break it up into three questions. First of all, what is radically ordinary hospitality? Second, why should Christians be hospitable? Why should we be hospitable? And then third, how can we, West Park Baptist Church, be hospitable in our context? Okay, so the what, the why, and the how of hospitality. Let's start with question one. What is radically ordinary hospitality? And we're going to read our passage again, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Because I think Jesus models it really well for us here. 
Luke 19, 1 through 10. It says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So what do we see here? What do we see here? Jesus is passing through Jericho, and a man named Zacchaeus wants to see him. So we can assume that this man had heard about Jesus, he'd heard about this great teacher, this miracle worker, and he just wanted to get a glimpse of what this guy looked like. But there was a problem. You see, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. And so he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? If you're not, if you didn't grow up in church, you just think that was the weirdest thing ever. Google it, okay? Google it. It's, it'll, it'll change your life. It's amazing, right? But anyway, yeah, this guy can't see Jesus, and so he gets up into a tree because he wants to get a look. But as Jesus is walking by, Zacchaeus gets much more than he ever bargained for. Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus in the tree. He intentionally seeks him out, and he pursues him. And now, Jesus was homeless, so he didn't have a house to invite him over to. So instead, Jesus goes to him and says, I'm coming to your house today, right? I'm coming over to your house. And during this meeting, something amazing happens. Zacchaeus is radically changed. It's a classic story, isn't it? If if you've grown up in church, you've heard it taught hundreds of times. And that's why I think I have to do a little extra work on it this morning. Because when we've heard something so much, when we've seen it on flannel graphs, right, in kids' ministry, right, all of a sudden it can lose some of its, it can lose some of its meaning, right? We stop seeing how radical it is. It becomes, it becomes a story about the fact that Jesus loves short people too, or something like that, right? But that's not it, okay? That's not it. I promise this is a radical story, and I have to help you see that it's not the kids' version, right? It's not the kids' version. I want to zoom in this morning on one aspect of the story. Jesus' radically ordinary hospitality. I keep saying that, and I'm going to keep saying it. His radically ordinary hospitality. I keep using that phrase. It, I didn't make it up. It comes from an author named Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Amazing book. Go read it. It's awesome. Rosaria Butterfield's her name. And she used this phrase. I think it's so helpful because it really helps us to understand what biblical hospitality looks like. So let me take some time to break it down. Okay, what is radically ordinary hospitality? Let me start with hospitality. Because here's the thing. When we think hospitality, and the, what the Bible's talking about when it says hospitality, I think are two very different things. I don't know about you, but when I think about hospitality, 
I think Martha Stewart, right? Anyone else? Like, that's where I go, right? Like, Martha Stewart, okay? When I think hospitality, I think of an incredibly clean home, beautiful decorations, right? Like, going in the fall now, you have your, you know, all the pumpkins everywhere and the pumpkin spice candle, okay? We have 10 of them in our house. It's great, okay? A feast laid out on fine china and a bunch of people who look like models laughing together as they eat and drink and, and, and you know, enjoy each other's company, right? That's what I think about when I think of hospitality. But when the Bible describes hospitality, it's talking about something very different. The Bible, the New Testament, the New Testament was written in Greek. And so when it says hospitality, it's the word philoxenia. Philoxenia, okay? Philo, meaning love. Okay, so think Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love, okay? Philo means love. And then xenos is stranger, Okay, stranger. So hospitality is philoxenia. It's the love of the stranger. To be hospitable is to love people who are different from you. That's what being hospitable is. It's not what Martha Stewart does, so that's great, right? It's, it's loving people who are different than you. And the Bible has a lot to say about this. Over and over again, the Bible commands followers of Jesus to be hospitable. The Bible takes this so seriously that did you know that being hospitable is actually a requirement to be an elder. To be an elder of a church, the Bible says you have to be hospitable. And so the New Testament paints a clear picture. Hospitality is not a suggestion. It's not something to do if you feel like it or if you feel like you're good at it. It's a command for every follower of Jesus. And this passage gives us an example of what true biblical hospitality is looks like. Look at this. Who is Zacchaeus? That's big, okay? Who is Zacchaeus? He's, he's short, right? We know that. He's a wee little man, but who is he, okay? How's he described other than that? He's the chief tax collector, the chief tax collector. We've talked about tax collectors a lot through this Luke series, right? They keep coming up. I won't, I won't rehash all that again, but let me just remind you, they're not popular, okay? People don't like them. They were traitors, Okay? They were Jews who turned on their own people to collect money for Rome. And they were corrupt. Not only were they collecting money for Rome, but they would add on their little fees to what Rome was taking. They would take whatever they want, and they could do whatever they want because they had the power of Rome behind them. They were hated. They were despised. And Zacchaeus is the chief of the despised. He's the chief tax collector. He's the top dog among the traitors. So put yourself in the Jewish people's shoes. You work hard, okay? You get up early. You go to bed late. You work hard, and yet you can't even feed your family. Because you work hard, but 70 to 80% of what you earn is going to the Roman army who's oppressing you or in the pockets of Zacchaeus, the traitor. So as you can't even make ends meet, as you can't feed your family, Zacchaeus is rich, and he's living the good life. Be honest. I know, I know we're in church, right? But how would you treat Zacchaeus? Think about it. How would you treat Zacchaeus? We see here in verse 7, it tells us that the people grumble when Jesus goes in to eat with Zacchaeus and stay at his house. And we just look at that and we say, they don't get it, right? They don't get it. We have to understand, we would do the same thing. <laughs> we would do the same thing. 
Jesus, this great teacher that they've heard about, walks into town. He's supposed to be a religious teacher, and he picks out the guy who is least, who is least deserving to spend time with him. And that's who he seeks out. They're not, they don't get it, right? They don't get it. How could this be the guy that he picks out? What's Jesus doing? What's Jesus doing? We have to do a little work here. We have to understand Jesus' culture, okay? Jesus didn't live in a meritocracy, okay? That means it's, it's a, you, you, get, you can earn your way, you can move forward, you can move higher on the social ladder by your merit and by, by doing good things and by, by working hard. Jesus didn't live in a society like that. It wasn't a meritocracy. He also didn't live in a democracy. You couldn't change things at the voting booth. In Jesus' society, there was very clearly defined social classes. It's called the patronage system. You were kind of stuck in the social class that you were born into. And so if you wanted to be successful, if you wanted to get things done, the only way you could do that was with help of the people who were above you on the social ladder. And so here's what, here's what we see. In this time, hospitality was everywhere. People were very hospitable, okay? They were very hospitable. But it's more like what we would call networking, okay? You use hospitality to rise up, or you'll use hospitality to get things done. You find someone who's above you on the social ladder, and you're hospitable to them because then they owe you, and they have to do something for you later, right? All hospitality was quid pro quo. It was this for that. It's I'll do this, but you have to do that. That's Jesus' society. So what's he doing? He's walking in, he's turning it on his head. You ever notice this? Who does Jesus eat with? Who does Jesus seek out? The lowest on the social ladder. He seeks out Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He seeks out prostitutes. He seeks out lepers. He seeks out sinners. Jesus intentionally pursued and loved the stranger. Jesus was the most hospitable man ever to exist. He left the 99 and he went looking for the one. He loved people who could do nothing for him. That's the key. He loved people who could do nothing for him. That's what we're commanded to do as Christians. Love people who can do nothing for us. So Christian hospitality is much more radical than Southern hospitality. It's much more radical than what Martha Stewart does. It's loving the stranger even if you get nothing in return. Christian hospitality is radical. Yet it's also ordinary. It's radical, yet it's also ordinary. It takes, it takes place over the course of our everyday lives. It doesn't get celebrated like a great conference or a great sermon or even selling all your stuff and moving overseas as a missionary. Those, those, those things are all amazing things. But it doesn't get celebrated like that. But just because it's ordinary doesn't mean it's insignificant. Small things can change the world. Do you know that? Small things can change the world. Earlier in Luke, Jesus compared the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. It's small. It's insignificant. But it's going to change the world. That's hospitality. That's, that's, what the, that's what the Bible says. Hospitality is allowing people to feel loved and welcomed and giving God an opportunity to work. It seems ordinary, but through it, we can change the world. Here's how Alan Hurst describes it. He says, missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity 
to extend the kingdom of God. We can literally eat our way into the kingdom of God. If every Christian household regularly invited a stranger into their home for a meal once a week, we would literally change the world by eating. Is that not the greatest mission strategy you've ever heard, right? Like, we can literally change the world by eating. Let me, let me prove it to you, okay? Just, that sounds ridiculous. Let me prove it to you. Here's a question. Here's a question. Bible trivia question. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? It says it in our passage, doesn't it? Verse 10, look, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to do something unbelievably radical. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to change the world. How did he do it? What was his strategy? Well, he taught in large groups. You remember that, right? Sermon on the Mount, things like that. We remember that. He did miracles. We remember that. But there's actually something he did far more often. He tells us. Here's his mission strategy. Luke 7, 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. That's his strategy. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. It's not very extraordinary. But Jesus changed the world through eating and drinking with people. Commentators point out that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal eating a meal or leaving a meal. Go back and look at it. He, he eats and drinks so much that what do his enemies say about him? He's a glutton and a drunkard, right? That's what they call him. They say he's a glutton and a drunkard. That's what they, that's what they accuse him of. Jesus eats a lot of meals. And it's not because he's a glutton and a drunkard. It's because he's being intentionally hospitable. We have to pay attention to who he's eating with, right? Jesus understood that there are 21 built-in mission opportunities every single week. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And he took advantage of them, right? He took advantage of them. This, look, we're supposed to be like Jesus as Christians. Is this not the best way ever to be like Jesus? I'm telling you, go eat with people, right? Go eat with people. That's what Jesus did. But through it, he changed the world. He changed the world. He went and he sought people out who were just desperate to be loved. And he invited them in for a meal. And he loved them. And he changed the world. We can do the same thing. We can do the same thing. And that takes me to question two. Takes me to question two. Why should we be hospitable? We've seen what it is. It's, it's loving the stranger. It's loving people who seemingly don't deserve it. It's loving the Zacchaeuses of the world, right? You have to think, think of the person that just makes your skin crawl, right? Like the person that you just have very little empathy for. It's loving them. Why are we called to be hospitable? Well, there's some simple answers. We could say we want to be like Jesus, right? We're commanded to do it. Let me go a little bit deeper. Let me give you two reasons, two reasons. First of all, Christians are hospitable, because we have a God who is hospitable. We are hospitable because we have a God who is hospitable. Even when we were living as his enemies, God loved us. He opened the door and invited us into a relationship with him through Jesus. If you're a Christian, Zacchaeus' story is your story. You were a sinner. You were a rebel against God. And then Jesus showed up with mercy in his eyes and he welcomed you in. That's your story. 
we have a God who is hospitable to us. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And now we go and do the same. That's the first reason. Here's number two. This is more practical. We're going to reach people in our increasingly post-Christian country. I just gave you the stats about that earlier. If we're going to reach people, I truly believe that hospitality is going to have to play a big part. And this is nothing new. I'm just saying we need to do what Jesus did, right? Like, that's it. We have to do what Jesus did. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, people get loved towards belief. People get loved towards belief. We have to notice when Jesus did evangelism, it didn't look like a sales pitch just to get more followers. It looked like love. And I think more and more in our current cultural climate, evangelism will start with hospitality. It'll start by welcoming in the stranger. There are so many people. Think about this. There are so many people around our city right now who are hungry just to be loved. They are hungry to be loved. They wake up, and, and I don't know, what. no matter what they do to spend their day, they wake up hungry for a place to be loved. Can you see Zacchaeus? I can imagine him waking up every morning, and though he had everything, he was hungry for a place to be loved, and Jesus provided that. Jesus provided that. Let's be a church that does the same thing for this city. Let's provide a place for those who are hungry to be loved to find that, to find that. Here's how Rosaria Butterfield explains it. She says, radically ordinary hospitality shows the skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. As we intentionally live as hospitable people, we show people the gospel. Our hospitality becomes a living, breathing example of our theology. But we don't stop there. Okay, some of y'all are getting mad. We don't stop there. It also sets up opportunities to share the gospel, right? We preach the gospel with our lives, but then hospitality opens up avenues to actually share the gospel. We can, t- we can tell people our story. We can tell people, I was like Zacchaeus. I was one way, and now I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in the middle was that I met Jesus. Hospitality allows us to do that. We're able to bring them into our lives. We're able to let people see how we interact and love our families. And in that, we can share the gospel. The gospel spreads through hospitality. That's number two. And then here's number three. Here's the third question. What does this look like for us? What does this look like? Try to sit down this week and just brainstorm. What does it actually look like for all of us in this room? How can we be hospitable in our context. Now, before I get really practical here, let me make sure that you know who's talking to you. Okay, I don't want you to think something, um, something that's not true. Um, I'm probably not the most qualified person to even teach on this, okay, because I'm not good at it, okay? Just to be honest with you, I'm not good at it. Um, I am an introvert, big time, big time introvert, okay? We host two groups at our house each week, the college students and the young adults, and I love them genuinely. I look forward to when they come over to our house, and when they leave, I feel like I could sleep for a week, right? <laughs> people, being around people, it, it, ex, it exhausts me, okay? I, I, I am filled up by being alone. Everything in me screams I need to treat my house like a castle and keep people out, right? 
That's what I want, okay? That's what I want because I'm an introvert. But I don't think the Bible leaves that for me, right? I don't think it leaves that as an option for me. Hospitality doesn't come naturally to me. I'll make another, another little confession here. Um, when I park my car in the driveway, I'm trying to get into the house as quick as I can to not talk to my neighbors, right? <laughs> and we're laughing because you all do the same thing, okay? We're laughing because you all do the same thing. But it, it's not right, okay? It's not hospitable. But I can come up with some excuse about why I deserve that, why I don't have to talk to people, why I don't have to love people today. Sorry, let me give you, I'm just going to make it awkward. Let me give you another confession. Um, I, even on my good days, even when I put my introvertedness aside and love people and talk to people and seek people out, um, I struggle to share the gospel with them one-on-one. I struggle. It, I, this is a lot easier, okay? It's a lot easier than one-on-one because you all can't really talk back, okay? I can just, I can just say what I'm going to say. I struggle one-on-one. And, I, and I, I start, to be honest with you, I start to tell myself these lies that just because I preach the gospel up here, I don't have to preach it one-on-one. I start to believe that. So all that to say, I'm opening up to you because all that to say, I fail at this often, but I have also become so convinced that I'm not excused from it. I'm not excused from it. There's no introvert card to get you out of hospitality. I kind of wish there was. But I've, 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 I've read scripture a lot this week looking at this subject of hospitality, and it's not in there, okay? It's not in there. Let me give you another, another important thing um, before we get into this. Um, if you're going to be hospitable, if you're going to do this, you have to have margin in your life. You have to have margin in your life if you're going to be hospitable. If you're too busy, you can't be hospitable. And here's the thing, we're talking about mission, we're talking about evangelism, we're talking about reaching people. Let me give you good news. You are not too sinful for God to use you. Amen? I don't care. You are not too sinful for God to use you. He can use you in this. But you may be too busy. You may be too busy. Preaching that to myself too. How many opportunities do I miss because I have to run off and do something else? Something good, by the way, right? But how many opportunities do I miss? You're not too sinful for God to use you, but you may be too busy. And if you're too busy to be hospitable, you're too busy. It's a, it's a command, right? It's a com- that's what I've seen this week, studying this. It's a command. It's not a suggestion for those who aren't busy. It's a command, I'll leave it at that, okay? If you're too busy to do hospitality, you are too busy. You are too busy. So with that said, what does hospitality look like for us? What does it look like for us? Here are three suggestions, okay? Three suggestions. Number one, hospitality in the church. Hospitality in the church. We've talked a lot about non-Christians this morning, but let me ask you, are you loving others in our church? Are you loving others in our church? Hospitality is loving the stranger. There are a lot of strange people in this room, okay? Are you loving them? Are you loving the people in our church? And let me ask this. If someone visits here for the first time, and maybe that's you today, maybe you were welcome here. Thank you for coming. If someone visits here for the first time, what do they experience? 
Are people reaching out to them? Are people talking to them? Are people pursuing them? Again, that's not my strength. I tell people I don't have to do that because I'm shy, right? Like I don't, I don't have to go reach out to people because it's just not natural for me. There's not that option. There's not that option. What do people experience when they walk into West Park Baptist Church on a Sunday morning? We should be the most hospitable room in the world because we have all experienced the hospitality of God and now we show that to anyone else we see. Let me give you, and I, I debated on either whether to go here, but I, I, it's, I think I'm going to, okay? Love the people in the church from different generations than you, okay? Love the people in the church from different generations than you. Here's the thing. When I look at our church, I think one of our greatest strengths is that we have a lot of older, godly people who have been following Jesus for decades. That is a strength of West Park Baptist Church, when I look out here, that you all have been following Jesus decades longer than I have been alive. If that's you, if that's you, our young adults and our teenagers and our kids need you. We, we, I'm, I'm speaking as a young adult. We need you, okay? We need you. Um, he may be mad that I say this, but Pastor Sam is 36 years older than me, okay? He's 36 years older than me. He's not here, so I can say whatever I want. So he is 36 years older than me, okay? But over the years, even though there's, a, there's an age gap, over the years, we have shared hundreds of cups of coffee. Hundreds. And that has changed my life, okay? And he, I don't know if you want to, he, he does this with a lot of people, okay? A lot of younger guys like me. It has changed my life. My life is totally different than if he had not done that. Because he's 36 years older than me. He's been through things. He's made mistakes. He's experienced things that I can't experience at my age. He has changed my life through cups of coffee. That's it, right? That's it. And here, I, I'm the minister to young adults. I want that so badly for every young adult in this church and every young adult who will come to this church. But Pastor Sam can't do it for everyone. Our pastors can't do it for everyone. We need you, okay? We need you. And if a young adult isn't interested in getting coffee with you, that's their problem, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll deal with them, okay? But we need you. I, I started with that statistic. One out of ten young adults is a resilient follower of Jesus. We have two options. We can either just shake our heads and say, wow, this generation is lost, or we can do something about it. We can have older Christians rise up and say, follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow me as I follow Jesus. And that will change the world. It'll change the world. So just start with a cup of coffee, okay? Start with a cup of coffee. That's all I'm asking. And then see where it goes from there, okay? I'll move on. Here we go. Number two. Number two. Hospitality in your home. Hospitality in your home. Think of it this way. One way to practice hospitality is to make your home a hospital. Welcome the lonely. Welcome the wounded. Welcome the weary. And give them a place to be helped and refreshed. Let me do some work on this one. Some of y'all are saying, I don't have a house. <laughs> I live in an apartment. I live in a dorm room. I have a weird roommate. I can't be hospitable, right? Some of y'all are saying, I do have a house, but it's small. It's messy. It's not nice. Like, what, you know, whatever. We go to the excuses. Here's what, here's what, I, here's what I want to ask. 
Try not to make excuses. Okay, I get it. I've been there, done that. Try to think of your home this way. Home is your shelter from the storms of life. Home is where you go to be rejuvenated and get your batteries recharged after a long day. And hospitality is welcoming people into that space. That's what it is. It's welcoming people into that space. Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Um, When me and Allie moved down to Austin, Texas, we moved down in December. And so it didn't make sense to come back to Knoxville for Christmas. And so as you can probably imagine, that was a really sad Christmas. (laughs) Okay, That was a really sad Christmas. We had just moved across the country, didn't really know anyone. Um, and we're getting FaceTime calls from our families doing all the traditions we love, and we are in Texas, where it's like 70 degrees, right? It doesn't even feel like Christmas. We were sad. Um, I remember that Christmas Eve being a low point for me, just personally, that, it was rough. And one of the pastors of our church had us over for lunch on Christmas Day. And he didn't do anything flashy. We just came over there and ate, and he invited us over into his traditions and in his safe space We walked in weary, we walked in wounded, and we left blessed. (laughs) We left not feeling like outsiders anymore. That's the power of a home. I'll tell you what we weren't talking about when we left. We weren't saying, wow, his house was huge, or his house was pretty, or his house, that wasn't it. It was, wow, he welcomed us in. He welcomed us in. See your home not as a place to put up the walls and get away. See your home as a gift from God to advance his kingdom. That's what your home is. That's what your home is. Here's number three, hospitality with your community group. Maybe all of this sounds really daunting. Like, I don't even know. I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this alone. How do I do this? Here's the great thing. You don't have to do it alone. You can practice hospitality with other Christians in your community group. Some of you all are already in one. Some of you are going to join one. What an excellent opportunity to be hospitable to people. What an excellent opportunity to invite people in and show them how Christians love each other. You know how awesome that is when someone walks in and sees a bunch of Christians in a home who are totally different from each other but love each other because they love Jesus? That's huge. What an opportunity. Here's the challenge for you. When you get into a community group, I've been in enough of these to know what's going to happen. When you get into the community group, here's what's going to happen. You're going to start feeling comfortable, and you're going to like the people you're with. And here's what you're going to say. I don't think we should add anyone. It'll mess with the group dynamic. <laughs> you, I've, I've said it. Like, I've said it a lot. I think, I think it's a valid argument. Okay? I, think, I think I get it. Like, I totally get it. There's books written on why that's the right way to think about it. Here's what I'm saying. Our elders have decided that community groups are going to be hospitable. Don't lose that. See them as an opportunity to be on mission together. How awesome is that, that you and your community group are locking arms on mission together, inviting in the stranger. What an opportunity. What an opportunity. Let me close with this. Let me close with this. Um, The person that I've learned the most about hospitality from is a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. So I already talked about her, already quoted her a couple times. Let me tell you her story. In the 90s, Rosaria was a tenured professor at Syracuse University, and she was not a Christian. She says that just the name of Jesus made her recoil in anger, and she couldn't stand followers of Jesus. 
at that point in her life, Rosaria was in a lesbian relationship. She was an LGBTQ activist. And the Christians she had come into contact with at that point had not loved her very well. They had actually been real jerks to her. And so as you can probably imagine, that left, her, that left a really bad taste in her mouth. So much so that she actually started writing a book about the religious right and their hatred of people like her. And in the course of writing this book, the Promise Keepers organization was coming to do an event in her town. And she wrote a newspaper article against them, speaking out against them. And it generated a lot of buzz. And she said that she put two big boxes on her desk. On one side was the fan mail telling her how great her article was. And on one side was a box with hate mail telling her that she's everything that's wrong with America. And then she got one letter from a guy named Ken, who was a pastor at a conservative Presbyterian church in town. And she said she read that letter, she read that letter, and she laid it down on the middle of her desk because she didn't know what to do with it. She said when she read this letter, this guy was totally different. The letter was totally different. He wasn't dealing in stereotypes. He was treating her as a human being made in the God's image with worth and dignity. He acknowledged what she wrote that was true, and yet he spoke the truth in love where he disagreed. And at the end of the letter, he invited her over for dinner with him and his wife. And she went because she wanted to do some research for her book, and she thought this was a good opportunity. <laughs> but here's the amazing thing. She wasn't ready for what she experienced. Because this Christian couple in their 70s loved her so well. They treated her with respect. And then something happened. Here's how she describes it. She says, we became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I'd never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. Rosaria would go to their home for every week for two years. In that time, she never set foot inside a church. But she went to their home every week for two years. They gave her a place to belong, even though she didn't believe. And eventually, Ken's God would become Rosaria's God. God would save her. And he used something as ordinary as inviting her over for a meal once a week. I started this morning with a bunch of statistics. And those can seem very daunting what do we learn from Rosaria's story? What do we learn from Zacchaeus' story? God uses environments of welcome to totally change people's identities. And God will use the hospitality of this church, if we let him, to do the exact same thing, if we let him. So let me pray. And then Max is going to come up and lead us in one last song. And we're going to sing a song called His Mercy is More. The song says, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. And let me, just, let me just challenge you. 
Max is just going to have, it's going to be him and a guitar. Sing this out as loud as you can. Because here's the thing. Our hospitality flows out of this. That our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. That's why we're hospitable. Okay, so let me pray and we'll sing this out. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are a hospitable God. That you welcomed us in when we didn't deserve it, when we were your enemies, when we had turned against you, when we were just like Zacchaeus, rebels, traitors. That you welcomed us in with mercy in your eyes. And we thank you for that. And I pray that that will overflow in us. Starting today and for the rest of our lives, that everywhere we go, we will be hospitable like you. We will be intentional like Jesus. Going and finding the strangers. Going and looking for the Zacchaeuses up in the tree. And seeking them out. Because that's what you did for us. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that your mercy is more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.